Well, have you ever been with a group of friends or with your family and you started reminiscing about days gone by? Places that you visited, things you did, people you used to know, some of whom you haven't heard from or seen in years. Maybe as you age, people who are no longer on this earth come up in those discussions. Sometimes those times are filled with joy and nostalgia, right? As you happily recall that time that Tommy fell into the lake or the time that Jamie showed up and surprised everyone for Christmas unexpectedly. Sometimes it's more complicated than that and certain names come up that are painful, right? Jerry from high school who fell in with the wrong crowd after graduation and never really recovered, or Tim, that black sheep cousin who, to the shock of everyone, got his girlfriend pregnant out of wedlock. We all have stories about people we know and love, right? And when we talk about those people with shared friends, all we have to do sometimes is say their name and a picture, whether good or bad or somewhere in the messiness in between, is painted for us isn't it? You know how this goes. You're having that conversation around the dinner table and suddenly a name pops up. Johnny. And everyone just kind of pauses the conversation. Remember Johnny? Yeah, we all remember. We all know. Nothing else needs to be said. Well, as we open up God's Word together this morning, that's what's going on. We're continuing on in our Advent series called This is Love by turning to Matthew chapter 1 uh, in a sermon that I've titled Love Came Through Broken People. As we look at this opening chapter of Matthew, keep in mind what's going on. Each of the names that Matthew references here carries with it a purpose, and we'll talk about a few of them this morning, some highlights, and, uh, but for the early readers of Matthew, recounting the lineage of Jesus would have been an exercise in joy and pain and all of the complex emotions in between, remembering the lives of people. On this list, we'll probably see some names that we're familiar with and some that we're not. Listed here are good kings and bad kings, prostitutes, adulterers, shepherds, and more. People who were on one hand titans of the faith and on the other totally broken by sin. Before we even dive into the text this morning, I'm going to tell you my two main points. First, you are not too broken to be used by God. You are not too broken to be used by God. And second, you are not too broken to be loved by God. You're not too broken to be loved by God. The people we see are here listed are Jesus' earthly lineage. The recounting of these names is a recounting of the people of God and that God used in Israel's history to ultimately bring forth the Savior of the world. So as we work through, we're going to do two things. First, we're going to sit around that proverbial dinner table and talk about a few names in the lineage of Jesus and reminisce about who they were and what they did, and remember some joys and sorrows together. And then, second, we'll talk about why it still matters to us today, a few thousand years later, as we celebrate Advent. So first up, a dinner table conversation. Let's start by reading the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. I did practice this a few times, and it went all right in first service. We'll see. These are some complex names. All right. Matthew 1, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, 
Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eliezer. Eliezer fathered Mathen. Mathen fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile of Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. At the outset of Matthew, he mentions two names who are prominent figures in the Old Testament, names you are probably familiar with. Jesus is identified as the son of David and the son of Abraham. Abraham as verse 2 starts with, shows up first in Genesis chapter 12. But some background before that, as the Bible opens in chapter 1, God creates the world, right, and says that it is good. And then God walks in the garden for a while with Adam and Eve in a relationship with them, and then sin enters the world as Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that relationship with God is marred and it results in Adam and Eve being expelled from the Garden of Eden. Then Cain murders his brother Abel. Noah and the flood happens as God cleanses the world. And then we come to the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 where people are prideful and arrogant and they're building this giant tower and God sees that they can do whatever they put their minds to and they don't have a need for him and so he scatters their languages or he confuses their languages and the people are scattered throughout the earth. And then we come to chapter 12, where we stumble upon Abram, this one who will become known as Abraham. Abraham is a turning point in Israel's history and consequently in our history because it's where God first makes his covenant, his promise to give the Israelites land and offspring and a special blessing relationship all through Abraham. That's who shows up first in the lineage of Jesus as Matthew records it. Father Abraham, right? He's kind of a legend in the church. Well, Abraham was a deeply broken and sinful man. God made this promise to him in chapter 12 to have this special relationship and give him uh, land and offspring. But just four, four short chapters later, in chapter 16, Abraham was getting impatient. See, his wife, Sarah was barren, and so she'd been unable to give him children, and so they began to doubt God's promise, to not trust that he would follow through on giving them a son. And so they thought it'd be a good idea to take matters into their own hands, and so Abraham sleeps with Sarah's Egyptian slave, Hagar, and instead she 
bears a son to him. This might sound like surrogacy, right? They needed someone to have their baby, and so Hagar did. This was not surrogacy. It was not okay. Hagar did not have a choice in whether she would sleep with and bear a child for Abraham. It is as bad as it sounds. But God redeems the story. He promises to take care of Hagar and her son Ishmael. And just as he had promised Abraham offspring, he promises to bless Hagar with offspring that will be too many to count. Further, in spite of their disbelief and disobedience, Sarah does bear offspring for Abraham, their son Isaac. And God forgives and redeems and keeps his promises in spite of that disobedience and sinfulness. If you know the story of Abraham, you know that there's a whole lot more good and bad that we could talk about. But for now, we'll leave it there. God chose Abraham, a broken, sinful, disobedient man, to father the nation of Israel. God's own chosen people. And he shows up here in all his brokenness at the beginning of Jesus' earthly genealogy. Then we have David. Oh, David. Right? We know David as king. King David, a man after God's own heart, a man who wrote beautiful poetry that we still read and use for worship today in the book of Psalms, a man who trusted God to protect him as, as his enemies pursued him from every direction, both day and night, a man with deep faith in God, a shepherd boy who slayed the giant Goliath just because he knew that God was on his side. From the fields of Bethlehem tending sheep, he grew and eventually took over for Saul as Israel's king, Israel's first good king. David, by all accounts, is often painted as a hero, right? But the thing about David is he wasn't quite as great as we remember him. He was sinful and broken and weak, just like every man sitting in this room today, David apparently had some deep issues with lust, as you may remember from his encounter with Bathsheba. If you're not familiar with that story, here's the summary. David is up on the roof of his palace while his armies are out at war. That's where he should have been, right, as the military commander king. He should have been out with his men in battle, but he's on the roof of his palace instead. And he looks over to the rooftop next to him, and what does he see? A beautiful woman taking a bath. Instead of leaving that roof and fleeing temptation as he should, David lingers. And then he summons this married woman, Bathsheba, who is mentioned later in this lineage in verse 6 as Uriah's wife, and he sleeps with her. Yes, just like Abraham, it's as bad as it sounds. She didn't have a choice in the matter. It gets even worse, though, as David doesn't repent, but instead he sends for Uriah, her husband, to come home for a well-deserved break from battle so he could sleep with his wife and pregnancy, and this pregnancy would be covered up and totally look legit. Uriah, though being an honorable man, refuses to sleep with his wife while his brothers-in-arms are still at war. And so instead, David sends Uriah to the front lines and instructs the men around him to withdraw. And Uriah is killed. Some hero, huh? He commands another man's wife to sleep with him and then has him murdered. David was a broken, deeply sinful, and disobedient man, an adulterous murderer. 
And yet, in 2 Samuel 7, God expands upon his promise to Abraham with David. God says this, when your time comes, that is David, David, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In spite of all that sin and brokenness, God promises that one will come from David, David, who will establish his kingdom forever. In spite of David's sin, God used him. God loved him and God made a profound promise to him that he would bring the Messiah who is clearly identified here and all throughout scripture as Jesus Christ. God promised to bring Jesus through David's line, broken David's line. It's amazing, right? There are some other names you might be familiar with that are mentioned here. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live. You remember that story where God told him he could have whatever he wanted instead of asking for wealth. God gave him, he asked for wisdom and so God gave him wisdom and wealth, the wisest and richest man to ever live. He, like his father David, apparently had a bit of an issue with lust and a desire for women. According to 1 Kings, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And no, having a thousand women wasn't good. No, there weren't allowances for Solomon to be polygamous and sleep with as many women as he could and know God wasn't okay with it. There are good kings like Asa and Jehoshaphat and wicked kings who did what was evil in God's sight like Rehoboam and Joram. But perhaps more interesting than all these men listed though are the five women who make the list. Listed here we have five women who are either overtly or subtly associated with sexual sin of some sort. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and Mary. The first woman listed here is Tamar. Tamar's story is found in Genesis chapter 38, and she finds herself in a tough spot. She's initially married to Judah's son, Ur, but the Lord puts him to death for doing what is evil in his sight. So then, as was customary and commanded by God to give widows a son to care for them, she was to become pregnant by her brother-in-law instead of her husband, who was dead, but her brother-in-law wouldn't fulfill his God-given duty, and because of that evil done in the Lord's sight, he too was put to death. So Judah, her father-in-law, now with two dead sons, is getting a little nervous about marrying Tamar off to another one of his sons, right? And so he just says, well, why don't you just come live with me for a while and live in my household and wait for my other son, Shelah, to grow up? So she does. She goes and lives with Judah for a long time, and she's hanging out in this house, and Shelah grows up, but of course he's not given to her as a husband, and so now she's a widow, alone, with no sons to care for her, and culturally without a son to care for her, she would have had almost no rights and certainly no means to earn income or care for herself. So she too decides to take matters into her own hands and posing as a prostitute in a town nearby, she seduces her father-in-law Judah and becomes pregnant with twins by him. There's a lot we could unpack there, right? Including the ways that Judah and his sons neglected to fulfill God's given, the God-given duty to Tamar. But needless to say, this is not exactly the kind of story that we would expect to find right up front in Jesus' lineage. But here it is. 
Why? Because God loves broken and sinful people and uses them in spite of their sin. Remember the story of Jericho, that famous city where God's people had to march around it one time a day for seven days and then give a loud shout and the walls fell and they had to overtake this city to enter the promised land. Maybe you saw that Veggie Tales episode that made it famous, right? They marched around and did their little shout, all the little vegetables. Well, that, that story is found in the book of Joshua and that's where Rahab is found, As Joshua began to lead God's people into the promised land, he knew that he would have to take down this city of Jericho, and so he sent some spies in to check out the situation before they tried to overtake it. And apparently the spies weren't that good because they were discovered by the people uh, of the city. But, But Rahab hid them. And she misled her own people as they were pursuing these Israelite spies to protect them. Because she had heard what God had done in parting the Red Sea. And she believed that he was the one true God. God's people, Israel, had been wandering in the desert for 40 years in the wilderness, right? Because of their disobedience and lack of faith. But here's Rahab, an outsider, believing in God. She'd never seen God move. She didn't have the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire leading her or seen God provide food and shelter day in and day out as Israel had. But she believed anyway. And when the city falls, she's saved and is grafted into the family of God. All that sounds great, right? She's a hero who placed her faith in God. So what's the catch? Well, she was a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. Again, our cleaned up version of church doesn't expect prostitutes to be listed here at the front of this lineage, but Jesus, but she is, but she is. Rahab is here, a prostitute listed. Why? Because it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Jesus came to save broken sinners. And when we, like Rahab, place our trust in him, we can be grafted into God's family. Ruth is a great book. Uh, I'd encourage you to check it out. That's where the story of Ruth is found, naturally. Uh, But in summary, Ruth is a Moabite woman who is grafted into the nation of Israel by God's grace. And while she likely did not commit any sexual sin of her own, she's the product of an incestual union between Lot and his firstborn daughter. Moabites were banned from the Lord's assembly in the book of Deuteronomy to the 10th generation. But by God's great mercy, Ruth, because of her faith, is grafted in. The fourth woman we talked about with David, Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. She's not caught up in sin of her own, right? She didn't have any choice in the matter. David sent for her and she was forced to sleep with him. But a union, an eventual marriage that came about under the cloud of sexual assault and murder isn't really a gold star in someone's family history. And yet, here we are. And of course, we have Mary, right? The fifth woman listed here. You can imagine the suspicion around her as she was pregnant. Oh, yeah, pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Heard that one before. How's that for conversation around the dinner table recounting the old family tree? It's brutal, right? It's brutal. And to be honest, as I was writing this sermon, I texted a friend and told him I felt bad about this a little bit because I feel like I'm just trashing these men and women in scripture but that's the point of all this 
isn't it? I feel bad and I feel like maybe I should tone it down a little bit and maybe not point out all these terrible things. But God didn't see fit to do that. He didn't see fit to wash the pages of Scripture and clean these stories up and leave out these key messy details. He specifically and intentionally chose these men and women, not just to list here, but to use to bring forth the Savior of the world. Why? Why would he do that? And why do these people still matter to us today? I am, for one, so glad that this is how God did this. I'm so glad that God chose these men and women. I'm glad that Matthew didn't choose the most righteous and least sinful people he could think of. Why? Because if God can use this motley crew, he can love and use you and me. Friends, if my life or your life was laid bare in the words of Scripture as the lives of these men and women are, if your greatest sins were spelled out in the pages of this book and some preacher came along a few thousand years later, you and I would be absolutely trashed as well. Right? We all have moments in our lives that we look back on and we think, oh no, if they knew about that, they'd kick me out of the church. They wouldn't want me included in their family. Those moments where we think that event, that thing that I did, caused God to love me a little bit less. We all have those moments. But the thing is, love came through broken people for broken people. Love came through broken people for broken people. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if it's as bad or worse than some of the stories that we just remembered together. Jesus, the one who sits on the throne of David and reigns forever as king, loves you. He loves you and he wants to use you for your good and his glory. Don't miss this. Church, love came through broken people for broken people. Maybe your marriage is crumbling all around you. Maybe your family is falling apart and it's kind of your fault. Maybe you've hurt someone physically, mentally, emotionally in ways that you never want another person to find out about. Maybe you've got deep regrets about wasting parts of your life pursuing things that you're not proud of, shameful things. I don't know what your story is and I don't know what's causing you to think that you shouldn't be part of God's family or you shouldn't be here worshiping with God's people. But hear this, God loves you. He loves you and he deeply desires a relationship with you. I'm not here to say that your sin doesn't have consequences or to condone you continuing on in that sin. Of course not. But if you place your trust in Jesus, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Scripture says and promises that you will be forgiven. Jesus takes your sin upon that cross and he pays for it and you can have a new transformed life in him. And by God's grace, he can redeem your story for good. That's what we celebrate and remember at Advent. Jesus, God incarnate, who is the definition of love, came through broken people for broken people. As we wrap up this morning, I want to look just quickly at the rest of Matthew chapter 1. So let's look at verses 18 to 25, actually 23. It says this, The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. 
after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel which is translated, God is with us. There are two candles lit today, right here, as we celebrate this second week of Advent. Week one was hope, and as Trevor pointed out before, week two is love. God, through broken people from Abraham and David to Tamar and Bathsheba to Joseph and Mary, stepped down in love to take on human flesh. He didn't have to. He could have washed his hands of these broken, sinful people and said, forget it. They deserve what's coming to him. But he didn't. He didn't. God, in his great love, promised a Savior would come. And God delivered on that promise. Emmanuel, God with us. We just saw story after story of how messy sin is, right? Ever since it entered the world in Genesis 3, it's been ruining everything it touches. And it tells us all kinds of lies, doesn't it? Before we turn to Jesus, it tells us things like, you're not good enough. You don't belong in a church. If you show up there, everyone will know you're a hypocrite. Stay home. Stay away. You don't belong. Nobody could ever love you or forgive you for what you've done. Those are lies. Jesus came, God with us for you because he loves you. You are not too broken to be used by God. You are not too broken to be loved by God. After we turn to him, we still hear these lies, don't we? But am I really forgiven? Am I really? Do I really not have to do anything to earn it anymore? Maybe I better try a little harder so God will have a reason to love me because I'm not sure he does. If anyone finds out about what I did, man, they'll know and they'll see me for the poser that I am. The ugliness of sin that you see in yourself, that ugliness that you're aware of and afraid of being seen in, we all have that. We all have it. I have it. You can ask my wife or my kids. It's ugly. It's ugly and it's worse than even my family, those closest to me, realize. Your heart is a little bit like that too, isn't it? You know your deepest and darkest sin issues. You are at times keenly aware of the terrible, sinful things that pop into your head. God had a plan for that. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was born of a virgin fulfilling prophecy and coming from a line of broken people because in your sin, God loves you and wants to forgive you. He knows that you can't do it on your own. That's why he came. If you could do it on your own, he wouldn't have needed to step down. But he knows you can't. He knows you can't wash the dirt off of yourself. You can't cleanse your heart stained with ugliness. But he can. This one who stepped down to earth, the one who would go on to live a perfect, spotless, sinless life, 
and yet still die the death of a criminal on a cross, that one, he can wash you. He can forgive you. And he loves you. My family has been doing this uh, kid-friendly Advent reading each day that someone suggested to us or my wife found, I'm not sure. But uh, one of the first days, uh, the kids had to do this. They had to read John 3.16. If you're not familiar with John 3.16, it says this. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. They read that verse and then they memorized these four words. God gave us Jesus. God gave us Jesus. That's the gospel in a nutshell. God gave us Jesus. It's simple enough that a child can memorize it in a few minutes and yet profound enough to change your life. God gave us Jesus. Emmanuel, God is with us. This Christmas and Advent season, wherever you are and whatever you're struggling with, press in to Jesus. Embrace the truth that you are not too broken to be used by God and you are not too broken to be loved by God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the truth found in it. We thank you for the genealogy in Matthew that's often skipped over as we read. We thank you for the rich history. We thank you for not scrubbing the pages of scripture of messiness, but for showing us that your son stepped down in the middle of that messiness, that he might save us. My God, and as we turn to you, would you free us from the lies that tell us we're not good enough, that we could never be loved and saved? Lord, we know that the shed blood of Jesus separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And so we celebrate you and we celebrate the gospel this season. We love you. We thank you for our time in the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.